Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. WORT 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinur. My guest today is Naomi Oreskes. She's co-author with Eric M. Conway of the book The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Load Government and Love the Free Market. Naomi is an American historian of science. She became professor of the history of science, an affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University in 2013. After 15 years as professor of history and science studies at the University of California, San Diego, please note that today's show is pre-recorded, so we cannot take your calls. And hello, Naomi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. So you say that American business manufactured the myth of the magic of the marketplace. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Well, many of us have come to believe in the power and the efficacy of what people often refer to as the free market. The idea that there is this thing called the free market, that the invisible hand of the marketplace moves things around in an efficient and effective way, and that therefore we can trust the marketplace to solve problems, satisfy our needs, deliver goods and services, and we don't need government uh, to manage it. In fact, the argument often goes that government just gets in the way. But in our book, we show that part of the reason we believe this is not because it's true, because we actually have tremendous amounts of evidence from history to say that um, at best it's a half-truth, uh, but that it has been promoted, actively, consciously promoted by American business leaders since the early part of the 20th century. So how, how have they come up with a myth and how have they spread it? How did they succeed in making, I think, the majority of Americans and, and possibly the majority of people on the planet believe in it? Well, it's a complicated story, as you can imagine. It's no small feat to convince 300 million Americans of an idea that's not really true. Um, so the book explains a variety of methods and techniques that were used over the course of the century. So it's a big book. Um, I like to reassure my readers, you don't have to read the whole thing. It's written in a way that you could pick out individual chapters. But we talk about how they tried to influence public opinion through marketing, public relations, and propaganda campaigns, through radio programs that were actually written by business leaders. So there was a very influential radio program in the 1930s called The American Family Robinson that was written and produced by the National Association of Manufacturers. to promote free market thinking in the face of the New Deal. They did it by influencing children's books, television, film, um, and then also influencing academia, particularly by financing something called the Free Market Project at the University of Chicago.
And um, that's not over, is it? it as, as you enumerate all these ways, I'm thinking there's not one of them that isn't still happening. Is, is that correct? Well, that's right. I mean, as historians, we try to understand the past as a way to understanding how we got to the present. And so obviously, if this weren't still going on today or if we weren't still influenced by this, it wouldn't be it would just be a historical curiosity. It's more than a curiosity. It's really central to our current political debates because so many of us were raised in school, were taught in college, uh, read popular books, saw films and magazine films and, and television programs that promoted these ideas. And because they still control the way many people in America, Uh, think about problems even today. Yeah. So I want I want to get to the history, but um, again, I'm thinking, for example, Ron DeSantis's Florida and um, everything around that, right? The books that people are allowed to read and are not allowed, the way universities and other institutions of uh, learning and education are treated um, It's very much alive, isn't it? <laughs> It's a story of controlling what we think by controlling what ideas we're exposed to. And so right now we're looking at some you know very disturbing trends in Florida, in Tennessee, in, really across the country uh, in uh, Arizona and New Mexico, to control what students learn in school, to control what they're told about American history. So these issues are very, very much alive today. One of the interesting things about our story is that in a way it's the reverse or the flip side of that. The people that we study, and this story begins in the early 20th century, didn't really try to ban books, but what they tried to do was to um, almost the opposite, to promote certain ideas through books. So one part of the story that many people have found very interesting has to do with the Little House on the Prairie mm-hmm. children's books. So this is one of the most wildly successful children's book series ever written ever written. More than 65 million copies of these books have been sold in the United States and more around the globe. They've been translated into many, many different languages. Um, the books are very popular in Japan, for example. And it was the basis of a very, very popular television series. Uh, that ran in the 1980s, I think, if memory serving. So what what is the story? So those of us who read the books may remember these very uplifting stories about a family, the Ingalls family, surviving on the American frontier through the dint of hard work, patriarchal love, and no help from the federal government. Um, these books were marketed as the true life story Of a young girl, Laura Ingalls, later Laura Ingalls Wilder, on the American frontier. But they were not true. In fact, the Ingalls family, their life history was really a story of more or less continual failure, one of tremendous hardship and poverty. But they were rewritten by Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, who was a prominent libertarian journalist, a friend of Herbert Hoover, a friend of industrialists like J. Howard Pugh, the president of the Sun Oil Company. So Rose Wilder Lane was part of a very libertarian political circle, and she was the, actually the ghostwriter of these books. Um, and she reconstructed her mother's life story as a success story, a libertarian parable of individual success through individual hard work without any help from the government. Now, the truth was, as I've already just said, the family was actually not particularly successful. And what successes they did have were largely made possible by the federal government through the Homestead Act and 
sadly, tragically, also by the clearing of indigenous peoples. Yeah. So um, one point that I'm thinking about is um, how important it is to convey your message to kids because kids believe what they're told and they grow up to be adults who still believe what they're told and um, unless they are exposed to other ideas and are willing to expose themselves to other ideas they they remain with these um, notions that that were implanted in them as kids and um, that's a very very um, very successful means of um, really brainwashing people if you will well that's right and many of our strongest views many of our most closely held beliefs and values are Are developed when we're children and young adults and so this is one reason why we see both in our story and in what is going on today the targeting of fiction the targeting of young adult literature the targeting of school libraries because once we became become adults most of us don't change our minds very often about things but when we're young we're very susceptible um, to views and what's really interesting I've noticed uh, this that if you look at what books are being banned in America today mostly they're fiction and their novels, their stories, and their, their things aimed at children and young adults. And so I think this is consistent with what you just said. But it's also so interesting to me that it's fiction. And if you ask yourself, well, why would we be troubled by fiction? Because after all, fiction is just stories. I think we know the answer because as children, many of us read a lot of fiction. And even though the stories may be fiction, they embed values, they embed ideals and ideas. And often... children don't really differentiate between the fictional part of a narrative and the claims about life and the real world. And so the little house books are extremely powerful in that respect because even though you might read them think, well, first of all, they were marketed as truth. They were marketed as historical accounts. In fact, some school districts even approved the use of the television show uh, in classrooms as educational materials because they were marketed as true life historical stories. So there's a misrepresentation of fiction as fact. But even if they were truly marketed as fiction, they would still be influential because they're, they're conveying a, a value set Uh, that can be very powerful and very influential. And so that's one of the reasons we notice in our story how much of the attention is not so much on history books, although we have that too, but on film, television, you know, radio dramas, because this is a very powerful way to reach the American people, more powerful than if you simply wrote a nonfiction book, although they do that too, and, and we should talk about the University of Chicago. Yeah, so you mentioned that the family um, was um, supported by the government, even though the message of the books is um, exactly the opposite, is very libertarian. And you also talk in the book about, for example, the Rural Electrification Administration, which is, again, a story of people um, who... who benefit from government acts but oppose the government. So let, let's hear about that particular example and maybe the echoes of it still today. So this book is, a, is really a history of propaganda. It's a history of disinformation. But it draws heavily on the training that 
I and my colleague Eric Conway have in history of science and technology. And one of the things we learn from the history of technology is the really central role of government, particularly here in the United States, but in other countries as well, in the development of technology. So many people in America believe the myth that technology is just invented by, you know, guys in garages wearing hoodies or individual lone entrepreneurs. But if you look at, and that might have been true, you know, in the 13th century, but if you look at the modern world, if you look at major technological developments, let's say since approximately the 1850s, there is no major technological development that it occurred in the United States that didn't involve a major contribution from the US federal government, whether it's railroads, radio, television, or electricity, or of course the internet. And electricity is a particularly interesting story. So we begin our book um, first with debates in the early 20th century over child labor and whether or not the government should intervene in the marketplace to protect children. But then we move to this incredibly interesting story about electricity. So electricity is a beautiful example of a technology that was initially developed primarily in the private sector and the private did a, sector did a good job up to a point. And that point was in delivering electricity in major urban areas like New York, Chicago, St. Louis. Why were they able to do it there? Well, because people were living closely together, so it was relatively inexpensive to um, build electricity lines to, build, to people who were living in densely populated areas. But to bring electricity to rural areas was far more costly because you'd have to run lines long distances into Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, places like that, Western Pennsylvania. And so the private sector said, no, we can't make a profit on that, so we won't do it. Now in Europe, electricity had been developed very differently. It had been viewed as a public good. It had been viewed as a kind of infrastructure similar to roads and bridges. And so governments in Germany, France, Japan, New Zealand had played a major role also in Canada in developing electricity and bringing it to rural customers. So a proposal was made to do that in the United States. It came from Gifford Pinchot, the progressive Republican governor of Pennsylvania. When he proposed this, two things happened. He was viciously attacked by the electricity industry who accused him of being a socialist, un-American, of trying to expropriate wealth. Um, and they tried to prevent his reelection as governor of Pennsylvania, almost succeeded, but not quite. But they also did something even worse and more significant, more long lasting. They organized a massive propaganda campaign to claim that the free market could solve our problems, that capitalism functioned best when the government just stayed out of it, uh, and to claim that municipal electricity, that is to say electricity generated by the public sector, cost more than electricity in the private sector. Now that was an outright lie. So how did they manage to promote that? Well, they did a few different things. They recruited academics. They paid academics essentially to become industry shills, to write reports claiming that private sector electricity was inexpensive and cost competitive when in fact it was not. And then they launched a massive propaganda campaign to promote free market economics in high schools, in colleges, in civics courses, uh, in economics classes, and in, and in the burgeoning business schools that were developing in the United States at this time. They paid people to rewrite textbooks. They pressured publishers and libraries to adopt these pro-capitalist, um, anti-public sector textbooks. Um, and subsequently, this all took place in the 1920s. In the 1930s, they were investigated by the Federal Communications Commission that concluded that this was 
a massive propaganda campaign, the largest peacetime propaganda campaign in U.S. history. And it was all based on the claim that you just had to trust the private sector to do this. And if you let the government intervene, we would be on the road to dictatorship. Now, the reality is that when the 1930s rolled around, the federal government did become involved in rural electrification through the Rural Electrification Administration. Electricity was delivered to rural Americans across the country, thanks not to the private sector, but to the public sector. And America did not become a, cap a communist dictatorship. So <laughs> all of the elements of this argument were proved to be false. They were proved to be propaganda. And yet what we see after the war is that other industry groups pick up those same arguments and continue to make them um, long into the future and up to the present day. Mm -hmm. And again, I can't help but jump to today. I mean, everything that you're talking about is so still alive. Um, it's just that it's so many years later and so much damage has been done already that, um, you know, we see it, for example, in climate change, um, the notion that... Um, Corporations whose only interest is profit um, are right and governments are wrong. And in many cases, and, you know, in many ways, even governments that are better than others are still wrong in many ways. But um, that, uh, that profit is God. And um, here we are. Here we are on the verge, not even on the verge anymore, in climate disaster, um, and it's going to get only worse, I'm afraid, especially as we're looking at what's happening at the COP28. Um, so that's one thing that I'm thinking about and several others, but let's start with that, because you also wrote a book, very important book, I think, about the climate crisis. So make the connection for us, please. Sure, thank you. Well, first of all, I just want to underscore what you just said. We're not saying that government is perfect or that government always works well or that government is always efficient. But what we're saying is that we've been fed a bill of goods about the inefficiency of government and the power of the marketplace. When the reality <clears throat> is much more balanced, the reality is we see, we see effective private sector activities and we see damaging and in ineffective private sector activities. And the same with governments. We have many government programs that work very well. We have others that work not so well, but we've been hamstrung in having a rational, truthful conversation about, you know, where the private sector has succeeded and failed and where government has succeeded and failed because of this diet of propaganda that we have been fed for 100 years. And as you say, this particularly plays out in the domain of the climate crisis. So Eric Conway and I came to this story through our work on the climate crisis. We, as you said, are the authors of a previous book, Merchants of Doubt, that looked at the phenomenon of climate change denial. We were interested many years ago, this is now going back almost 20 years, it makes mm. me feel very old to talk about this. So um, back in the mid 2000s, we became interested in why intelligent people would deny the overwhelming scientific evidence that man-made climate change was happening and that it was caused mostly by burning fossil fuels. As historians of science and technology, we knew that the scientific evidence of that was overwhelming. We knew that it was clear, that it was robust, and we knew that scientists had been saying that this was the case at least since the 1990s. So at this time, it was about a decade. Now it's three decades. So why would anyone doubt that scientific evidence? And what we discovered was a really astonishing story of um, not so much of the fossil fuel industry paying shills, 
But if people motivated by an almost religiously fervent belief in the power of the free market, and it's what we refer to in the new book as market fundamentalism, this idea that we can just trust the market to solve problems and in addition, crucially, if the government gets involved in the marketplace, that this puts us on a slippery slope to socialism, communism, Soviet-style dictatorship. And when we dug into these people's writings, their letters, their diaries, their publications, we saw this argument being made in their own words in black and white. So it was pretty clear that they were motivated not because they were being paid off by the fossil fuel industry, although that also happened, but that mostly comes later. Um, because we trace the origins of climate change denial back to the late 1980s. So in the late 1980s, early 1990s, right around the time when the Cold War is ending, there's this tremendous anxiety that with the end of the Cold War, environmental regulation will become a sort of backdoor to socialism. And so we became, so that was the story we told in Merchants of Doubt. Yeah. So, once that, so once that book was finished, we asked ourselves, the follow-up question was, well, where did market fundamentalism come from? And why would anyone believe it when we have so much evidence, you know, from things like the history of rural electrification or the history of the internet to know that it's not true? And so that's what motivated us then to, to tell this, to write this new book and tell this story. But it definitely has its roots in climate change denial because we see even today, many of the people who deny, either deny the reality of climate change or deny its severity are also denying the need for government action. And so they'll say, oh, well, don't worry, just trust innovation in the marketplace, we'll solve it, we'll get new technologies, government doesn't have to do anything, it'll all be fine. And the problem with that argument, well, the problem is we know it's not true. We know it's false because we've now had 30 years. The market has known about the climate crisis you know, since the late 1980s when climate modeler Jim Hansen first testified in Congress about it and it was on the front page of the New York Times, the marketplace has had plenty of time to respond and try to develop solutions, but it doesn't because, as you said, because of the profit motive, because at the end of the day, fossil fuels are wildly profitable and no other alternative has emerged that is even remotely as profitable. So as long as the problem is addressed solely or primarily through the marketplace, through profit motives, we'll just keep on burning fossil fuels. And that's why we need a government response to level the playing field and say, okay, well, all the market-based incentives are towards destroying the planet. So can we come up with a different set of incentives that would actually enable us to protect the planet and continue to live on this planet in a happy and healthy way? Yeah. So one thing I always wonder about, and um, I don't think you um, touch on it in the book, but having looked at all of these um, phenomena, uh, maybe you understand it at least to some degree, is this. Um, like you said, um, many years ago, um, scientists, for example, for Exxon and, and you know many other corporations knew what was happening, knew that climate change is uh, coming and that it's going to be terrible, and they were silent about it. These people live on the same planet as you and me. Um, climate change affects them the same way as you and me, though they may be more wealthy and therefore, um, <clears throat> you know, their homes may be better prepared and, you know, they may have um, 
shelters and basements full of water and, and food and all that. But eventually, it'll get to them too. What, what kind of um, thinking allows them to just uh, continue lying, knowing that they're endangering themselves, their kids, their grandkids, and so on? Yes, well, I get this question a lot. And of course, it's difficult to know for sure because I'm not a mind reader. But sometimes people do write down shockingly open things. And so as a historian, one of the things we do is we look for documents, letters, memos, where people discuss these things. And, and I think we can identify at least two things that are going on in this story. I call this the how do they sleep at night question, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and this came up for us a lot when we were working on the history of the tobacco industry. Because what we showed in Merchants of Doubt was that the whole strategy of climate change denial was based on an earlier campaign to deny the harms of tobacco. So one part of the story is, is an old story, and it's one word, it's greed. There is no question that some people are profoundly, almost pathologically greedy, and will do almost anything to accumulate wealth, even if other people are getting hurt. And that's just a sad fact of life, and those people exist And it's one of the reasons we have to have laws and regulations against those kinds of behaviors that cause damage to other people. But I actually don't think that's the dominant thing. I think those people exist, but I actually think they're the minority. I think much more common um, is rationalization, that people have a tremendous power to rationalize what they're doing uh, if it serves their own personal interests. And this is where the market fundamentalism argument comes in. So someone's selling a dangerous product like tobacco. They know it's killing people. They know they are selling a product that's killing people. They know it's addictive. And they know that they are addicting young people because most people start smoking as teenagers. And if you don't start smoking as a teenager, chances are you will never start smoking. So how do they rationalize? How do they justify selling a deadly addictive product to teenagers? And we also know that the tobacco industry consciously marketed to children Um, through the famous Joe Camel advertising series. Well, they rationalized it. And again, this we know from their own writings. This is not speculation or psychoanalysis. They rationalized it through this argument to say, well, look, smoking might not be bad, but do you really want to live in a world where the government decides for you? Don't you think that you should be able to decide for yourself? And so they constructed this whole argument about freedom. And this is a big part of the story we tell in the new book about how they tried to link to, um, oh, what's the word I want, to corral the ideals and values of freedom and individualism to say, you don't want the government regulating tobacco, child labor, workman's compensation, whatever it is, even though it might seem, and that we, as I said, in the new book, we start with the child labor argument. And it's such a great argument because, again, you could ask the same thing. How could any decent person think that it was acceptable for a six-year-old child to be working in a textile mill or coal mine? But this is how they rationalized it. Because they would say, if you let the government regulate it, then it's only a matter of time before the government takes over everything and we're living in a dictatorship. And so this argument becomes central to how they can justify what would obviously otherwise be entirely self-serving positions. And it's part of how they give it credibility in the public sphere, because people say, oh, yeah, you're right. People should really decide for themselves whether or not they want to smoke, or people should decide for themselves whether or not they want their children to work in a factory. So you can begin to see how the argument takes on a certain kind of credibility, even though at root of it is 
a kind of venality. Yeah, and again, um, jumping to the our current times, freedom is one of these words that um, are used very much by, by Trump and, you know, generally the... Um, the Republicans nowadays who um, are so extreme. And um, Trump himself has said that if he gets elected again, he will be a dictator. He said it in so many words, and I think he said it with that word itself too. And yet his followers think that we're talking about freedom. So... I know it's I mean, it's really an amazing rhetorical trick. And this is why I think, you know, the story we tell in the new book is so interesting and really so important to understand. How do people manage to persuade us of ideas that, you know, really are, are venal, that are noxious, that are, go against our own self-interest, that undermine the foundations of democracy? Well, one of the ways they do it is to persuade us that they're actually defending something good something we really care about. And one of the most telling documents we found in writing this new book was an absolutely astonishing memorandum written by staff at the National Association of Manufacturers in the 1930s. So they were running this whole prop new deal to fight fair labor standards, to fight minimum wage, all kinds of things that most Americans wanted. The vast majority of American people supported Franklin Roosevelt, supported the new deal. We elected Roosevelt, re-elected him four times. Um, so you know, tremendously popular president addressing a genuine crisis in the American economy. So one of the National Association of Manufacturers staffers says, well, you know, we're not really breaking through because honestly, we're not really that credible on these issues, but we could become credible if we link it to something that all Americans value, and that something is freedom. And so later that year, they launch a propaganda campaign, which they call the Tripod of Freedom. And the claim is that American democracy is founded on three essential interlinked concepts, representative democracy, the freedoms instantiated in the Bill of Rights, and free enterprise capitalism. Mm. And so the argument is that it's like a tripod. If you compromise any one of them, the one they're obviously concerned about is the capitalism part, the whole structure will crumble. Now, this is ridiculous. First of all, it's historically untrue. If you read the Declaration of Independence, if you read the Federalist Papers, if you read uh, the Constitution, free enterprise appears nowhere in any of that. And we do have property, but that's not the same thing. Um, so it's not true. It's a misrepresentation of history, but it's also a misrepresentation of the New Deal. Because in fact, under the New Deal, we got rural electrification, as we were just discussing. We got protections for labor. We got minimum wage laws. We finally outlawed most forms of child labor. And America remained a democracy. So the idea that you threaten democracy when you put limits on economic freedom, it's simply not true. But by using the, by repeating over and over again, freedom, 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 uh, they were able to begin to chip away at American support for these programs. And in the 1950s, we see the tobacco industry using the exact same argument. There's a particularly noxious advertising campaign that the tobacco industry used to market tobacco products to black Americans, in which they showed pictures of famous great black Americans next to um, text that basically said, this is about your freedom. And so it was about the freedom to smoke. Yeah. 
Oi. Well, my guest is... <laughs> Why is right? <laughs> isn't it? My guest is Naomi Oreskes. She's co-author with Eric M. Conway of The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Load Government and Love the Free Market. And a reminder that today's show is uh, pre-recorded and we cannot take your calls. So let's get back then, Naomi, to the beginning. Who, where... You know, first of all, let me ask you to define what neoliberalism is, because we talk about it often, and I've asked others to define what that means, and I, I would love to hear your definition. And um, then who, who were the first neoliberals, and, and how do they come to fashion their ideas? And I think we talked to a large degree already on these ideas, but um, yeah, whatever you want to add to that. Great question. So neoliberalism is a bit of a vexed word because people use it in so many different ways now. And as some of the people we write about in the book even say, some people use it as a kind of almost a swear word, right? To say, oh, he's a neoliberal. Um, so it's a little bit difficult to even pin down exactly what it is. But if we go, go back to, say, the 1930s and 40s and people who called themselves neoliberals, they are responding to the Great Depression. So during the Great Depression, the capitalist systems, the capitalist economies of the United States and Europe were in free fall. Uh, we've had 25% or more of the American people were unemployed, similar if not worse statistics in the United Kingdom. And in response to the crisis of the Great Depression, many people, academic leaders, economists, government leaders, ordinary citizens, really thought that laissez-faire economics had been discredited and that it was obvious that the government had to step in to address the crisis. And the way they did was by adopting Keynesian economics. That is to say that the government needed to play a major role in the economy, primarily through public spending, to jumpstart the economy and to get people back to work. So through employment programs, uh, through um, jobs programs, and through government spending on public works. This growth of government authority, government power, government action in the marketplace was deeply disturbing to a group of thinkers mostly in Europe, who saw it as a threat to freedom because they thought that it would lead to an encroachment on individual rights. So they call themselves neoliberalism because they see themselves as defending classic traditional liberal values of individual rights, individual autonomy, individual decision-making in contradistinction to um, an overarching state which they fear will become dictatorial or dirigiste is the word that's often used in Europe. So it's a interesting argument in the 1940s because of course you can you can under, you can have some sympathy to some aspects of it and they're particularly worried that if the government becomes involved in planning the economy that this will lead to a loss of freedom akin to what has happened in the Soviet Union. So there's a set of complicated, sophisticated and very very interesting arguments that take place. But one of the things we ask in the book is, okay, so, and so lots of the early neoliberals had a lot of different views about what the right role of government was. There are people in Germany who are called ordo liberals who believe that you need to have a market economy, but obviously the state has to play a strong role in something like protecting workers' rights. Even Friedrich von Hayek, who's considered one of the key founders of uh, neoliberalism, he says, you, you know, you have to have social security, you have to have laws against pollution. So these people are not lunatic free marketeers. Uh, many of them are pretty sophisticated, but 
one of the things that happens, particularly here in the United States, is that it's a particular version of neoliberalism that comes to dominate. And that version is a very extremist, very anti-government version. And so one of the questions we ask in the book is, so why is it that that particular version, the market fundamentalist version, comes to dominate in the United States, where it really doesn't in Germany or France? And so the answer, we argue, is because a group of American businessmen decide to make that happen. And so in the book, we track what happens after World War II, how these business leaders bring key neoliberal thinkers, particularly Friedrich von Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, two of the founders of the Austrian School of Economics, bring them to America, simplify and frankly dumb down their arguments, and then promote a very simplified, a very flattened version of their argument through popularized versions of the books, through comic books. Literally, they do a comic book version of Hayek's famous book, The Road to Serfdom, um, and then also through promoting the free market project at the University of Chicago. Yeah, and speaking of the University of Chicago, Milton Friedman, um, a very well-known name, but tell us um, who was he, what, what is his thinking, which still uh, rules to a large degree, and um, what's wrong with that? Well, so lots of us, particularly in academia where I reside, like to believe that academia is a free market of ideas, that people mm. compete uh, and that the best ideas win. But sadly, that's often not true because the reality is that some ideas get well-funded and supported and other ideas don't. And in this case, we can show how the ideas of Milton Friedman, this extreme anti-government pro-market view, was consciously promoted, nurtured, and funded by a group of American businessmen with links back to the earlier part of the story. So one of the key figures here is a man named Jasper Crane. He was an executive at the DuPont Corporation. Uh, DuPont had, had close links to the National Association of Manufacturers, who we've just been talking about. He was friends with Rose Wilder Lane, the ghostwriter of the Little House on the Prairie books. So there's a very close interconnection between the different parts of the story. Jasper Crane, uh, working with a couple of other colleagues, decides after World War II that they will pay for Friedrich von Hayek and Ludwig von Mises to come to America and get them jobs in American universities. And one of the key universities is the University of Chicago, where they get a job for Friedrich von Hayek. They actually pay his salary, and they set up a program that they call the Free Market Project. And the explicit purpose of this project is not to do open-ended investigations in in economics or to figure out you know, why markets work well in some cases and not in others. It's to promote free market economics in the United States and to do this by cultivating individual thinkers who will write books and articles and also public materials that it won't, it's very explicitly not just about doing academic work but also doing work that reaches broader publics. And probably the most important person in this part of the story is Milton Friedman. So they finance Friedman's work and they support him to write what they want. So they, they say in their letters and, and such, what they really would like to see is an American version of Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom. They think it's a quite brilliant book. They think it lays out the argument very well, but they also think it's too highbrow and too intellectual for an American audience. So they say, we really need someone to write the American version of this. And they even talk about it as a Bible of market fundamentalism. They say the communists have Das Kapital, the fascists have Mein Kampf, but we need our, our manifesto. 
And so that book, originally they hoped that Hayek will do it, that he'll rewrite the book for an American audience. He never does that, but Milton Friedman does. And so he writes the book, Capitalism and Freedom, published in 1962 with financial support from these business leaders. And this becomes the key American statement of market fundamentalism. It's heavily promoted in the business community. Uh, he gets hired as a columnist for Newsweek magazine, where over the next 20 years, he writes literally hundreds of columns promoting these ideas to the you know, American people. And he becomes an advisor to Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom, to Ronald Reagan here in the United States, and most terribly to the dictator Augusto Pinochet in Chile. Yeah, which is what I wanted to um, follow up with, because not just Pinochet, but um, um, economists from the University of Chicago were deployed all over Latin America uh, during the time of the dictators, which is not over, it seems. Um, they were deployed to the former Soviet Union when it fell and um, has caused tremendous damage there. If you can talk about the way um, that kind of thinking, the Milton Friedman thinking, has affected really large parts of the world beyond the United States. This is a great question, and it's interesting because Eric and I think we've written a pretty tough book. Uh, we think we don't pull any punches, but a couple of colleagues have said, actually, we weren't tough enough on this particular issue. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. So we talk about it a little bit. The book is mostly U.S. focused primarily because, you know, there's a limit to what you could do. The book's already 547 pages yeah. long. But there's a very, very important story to be told then about how these ideas get exported, particularly to Latin and South America. So the argument in Capitalism Freedom, Milton Friedman's argument, is then used to either persuade or pressure governments in South America and Latin America to adopt neoliberal policies, pro-market policies, to reduce taxes, to reduce regulation on business, and to allow the private sector to operate uh, very, very freely. And many American banks will only loan money to South American countries if they agree to these terms. And so what we see is a whole period of time in which protections for workers protections for consumers, protections for the environment are greatly reduced across Latin and South America. Now, you, if you believe Milton Friedman's argument, this should have also led to an increase in political freedom. This is the argument of capitalism and freedom, that capitalism and freedom are linked. So if you empower the capitalists, you empower markets, then you'll see an empowerment of political freedom as well. But in fact, the opposite occurs um, in most of these countries, and Chile is the case in point, it's the most well-documented, what we actually see is that it empowers dictators who are linked to the private sector, who strip people of their dem democratic freedoms, who suppress political dissent. And we know that in the case of Chile, murder thousands of Chilean citizens, torture many, many more. And even to this day, we've never actually seen a full accounting of all of the people who disappeared under the repressive dictatorship um, of Augusto Pinochet, who was following policies recommended to him by Milton Friedman and other economists trained at the Chicago School. Yeah. So another aspect of uh, market fundamentalism is also about religion, 
and mass culture. We talked about mass culture uh, quite a bit, but religion always seems to be involved too. I mean, there's freedom, there's God, there's uh, guns, you know. These are, right. uh, these are what um, the greatness of, the, of capitalism basically is. So talk about the, the way religion is used and um, how genuine that is. I'm, I'm assuming like everything else, some people really believe that and some people just um, pray on it. Pray with yes. E. <laughs> yes, <laughs> pray with an E, right. They do both. Um, so this story has a religious component, both metaphorically and also literally. So the metaphorical piece is market fundamentalism as a kind of quasi-religious belief. And some people have taken offense that we've used this phrase fundamentalism. So some conservative economists have, have been upset about this. But I think it's a fair word because we see it being promoted as a kind of quasi-religious faith. And even think about the metaphor of the invisible hand. I mean, who does that invisible hand belong to? It's a kind of godlike vision of the marketplace as having godlike powers, having a kind of omniscience, an omnipresence that the market you know, the market, Harvey Cox uh, at the Harvard Divinity School wrote a great book called The Market is God. There's a way in which the market is treated as God. And we simply are encouraged to trust, to have faith in the wisdom of the marketplace, the magic of the marketplace. And in some cases, we see illustrations produced that have explicitly religious overtones. So when a group of Americans publish a dumbed-down version of Friedrich von Hayek's Road to Serfdom in Reader's Digest magazine. They accompany it by an illustration that has the commandments of political um, and economic liberty, and the commandments are written on stone like the tablets that hmm. Moses has brought down from Mount Sinai. So there's a clearly a kind of figurative or metaphorical religious framing of these beliefs. But in addition, there's a literal religious part of this as well. So one of the things that happens um, in the early 1950s is that the folks we've been talking about have been proselytizing these ideas for more than half a century, since the early part of the 20th century, but they haven't really succeeded. And they haven't succeeded in part because religious people, and by that I mean people of faith, particularly mainline Protestants in the United States, saw capitalism as fundamentally unchristian. Because if you think about the message of Jesus, what is his message? It's a message of love for the poor, of compassion for the poor, right? And there's the famous line in the New Testament where he says, you know, a rich man can get into heaven. You know, a camel can go through the eye of a needle more easily than a rich man can get into heaven. And this is a really deep part of scripture. And so there are, especially during the Great Depression, many American Protestants feel very strongly about the need for government support of people who are suffering, and they support the New Deal. This drives the conservative business leaders crazy, and particularly a man by the name of J. Howard Pugh, who I just mentioned, who's the president of the Sun Oil Company. Um, he's closely associated with the National Association of Manufacturers, and he's deeply anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic. So he decides that they need to take action to align American Protestants with free market capitalism. And so he funds a movement called Spiritual Mobilization based in Los Angeles that really becomes part of the roots of a modern American evangelical Protestantism and the kind of right-wing reactionary um, Protestantism that has 
that became part of the Reagan coalition that put Ronald Reagan in power, even though Reagan himself was not a religious man and definitely not evangelical. And so one of the things that this book explains is it's always been a bit of a mystery. How did Ronald Reagan even get the support of evangelicals when he was our first divorce president? He never went to church. He almost certainly didn't believe in God. And the answer is because Pew, through spiritual mobilization, had mobilized American Protestants to align them with this conservative business message and to persuade them that actually it was Christian um, to tell the poor that they kind of had to stand up for themselves. And he does this in part through um, trying to influence ministers. They try to influence what's being taught in seminaries across the United States. They develop a magazine, a journal called Christian Economics, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and of course, all is true for Trump, too, again, uh, the most corrupt person in, in American um, politics in a long time. You probably know of others that I don't, but um, and again, he, he gets the support of the fundamentalists, but we, we don't have much time, so I want to ask you about, um, you call it, I think, the failure of progressive foundations and organizations to react to the spread of uh, this all-consuming myth. And um, so just yesterday, I was um, one of the people delivering a letter to a presumably progressive senator, Tammy Baldwin, um, for Jewish Voice for Peace. We were doing it. And um, demanding that she stop supporting basically the military industrial complex by continue but by supporting continued aid to Israel as it uh, d- destroys Gaza and its people and um that she support um ceasefire and so on and and Another woman who was there from another organization and I ended up talking about capitalism because <laughs> this is what it's about, isn't it? To a large degree, it's not only. Um, but we were talking on this show about how there is oil and gas in Gaza and in the waters around it, um, which must be a big part of what's going on and why the United States supports it. So we have only five minutes, but if you can <laughs> just talk about they, they won, they're winning. Why can't we... Um, succeed. <laughs> it seems like whatever, if we succeed, they immediately co-opt it and, and you know, use the language and, and still work against us. So we're going to solve all the problems of capitalism in the next three and a half minutes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, Let's do that. It's, a, it's a huge question. You know, Eric and I always say every good book always ends by opening up another set of questions. And the questions yes. that we do address at the end of the book are the big questions about capitalism. And we obviously knew we couldn't answer them in this book, but we do talk a bit about some of the larger questions. And I think we are facing a crisis of capitalism right now because all of these big questions are interconnected, right? Income inequality is a direct result, as Thomas Piketty has argued, of the way our capitalist system operates. As, as people like to say, it's a feature, not a bug. And you need governments to become involved in redressing the inequalities of income. And that's something that conservatives love to hate, right? They love to attack income redistribution. But you have to have income redistribution if you want equity and equality. But it's also tied to oil and gas because so many of the biggest corporations on this planet are fossil fuel corporations. And we know that they have corrupted governments 
around the world. They have um, stolen indigenous lands, they have polluted the environment, and they're continuing to corrupt the political process, even as we speak today, because yeah. we're recording this while the COP meetings are going on in Dubai. Um, and of course, that is related to um, the military industrial complex, because why does the United States have this gargantuan military that we have 10 times the size of any other nation on earth? I mean, we spend more on armaments than the next 10 countries combined. Um, well, a lot of that is used to defend oil and gas uh, reserves around the world. And a lot of that, you know, if you ask yourself, why has the Middle East been a place of such persistent conflict over the last century, a significant part of the answer to that question has to be about oil and gas and the way the United States has supported corrupt regimes, um, the way we overthrew the democratically elected uh, government in Iran and put in a brutal dictatorship um, that then was overturned by Islamic fundamentalists, um, our relationship to Saudi Arabia. I mean, so many of these things are intertwined. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, these issues are difficult to talk about because they are all intertwined. And so what we've really tried to do in our book is to take one important piece of it, right? Yeah. And to say the capitalist system by itself produces these giant problems. It produces some good things too, you know, it has produced prosperity and it has produced technological innovation, but it also has created some gigantic problems. And, and we really want our book to be part of a bigger conversation about the failures of capitalism and how we address those giant problems. Yeah. And so you have another book in the offing? <laughs> Not yet. Um, people always say, what are you going to do now? The answer is my laundry. <laughs> but I do think that the next book is probably going to be have to be something that picks up on these themes we've just been discussing in these final minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know exactly how much time we have, but um, do you have hope? Where, where is your hope? Well, of course I have hope. I mean, I have to, because if I, if I didn't believe that books could influence people, I wouldn't write them. And I think part of the reason we felt so many motivated to write this book, to bring this back to the earlier part of our conversation, the people we are studying absolutely believed in the power of ideas. They believed that by writing books or banning books, by developing television or radio programs, they could influence the American people. And I believe they were right about that. Yeah. And so I think part of the challenge for us now is to push back against that and say, those ideas were misleading. But let's have an honest conversation about what we're addressing and figure out what real solutions, equitable solutions could look like, not just for all Americans, but for all people around the globe. Yeah, yeah. Well, Naomi Oreskes is an American historian of science. She became professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard in 2013. And she's the author with Eric M. Conway of The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Thank you so much, Naomi. Um, we could talk for two more hours, but we're out of time now. Thanks. Thank you. It's been, been great speaking with you. Thank Thank you, and thanks to Jade, too. And uh, I'm S.D. Dinur. We'll be talking again. Bye-bye. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream. Media distorted. We come and listen